Our scripture reading is from the 7th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 7, we want to just read from verse 1. Isaiah chapter 7, reading from the opening verse, we'll just read through to the verse 16. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thy and Shear Jashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed, and be quiet. Fear not, and neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syriam, and of the son of Remaliah. Because Syriam, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken even evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah, and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely it shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, <coughs> Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. We'll end our reading just there at the verse 16, knowing that God will add to the public reading of his word his own divine seal of approval and blessing. Let's just with our Bibles open before us, unite our hearts together as we pray. Let us all pray. Our gracious Father, we thank thee for thy word. 
We bless thee that thy word is a lamp unto her feet and a light unto her path, that thy word is that word that guides us in the way that we should go. And we pray that above all we might know that thy precious word it points us to our beloved Saviour. For in the volume of the book it is written of him. Be pleased now to hide the human instrument behind the cross. This is thy word. We pray that it may come as from thyself. We humbly, we reverently pray for our Saviour's sake. Amen. Many commentators of the Old Testament scriptures have fully recognised that the prophecy of Isaiah is identified as the most evangelical book in the Old Testament scriptures. And very few who have studied carefully uh, the message of God's word uh, could disagree with their acknowledgement. Now while I personally accept uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is spoken of uh, from Genesis to Malachi and also of course uh, from Matthew to Revelation, it is most challenging to read the words of Isaiah 53 in light of our Saviour's sufferings on the cross at Calvary. In the past tense, we are told, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes uh, we are healed. I fear it must only be uh, the spiritually blind who could not see that that text of Scripture refers to the blessed Messiah. But as we prayerfully read through this prophecy, you will discover many, many more references to our beloved Lord Jesus Christ. Here, for example, in the seventh chapter of Isaiah, from which we have read, we have in verse 14 the clearest confirmation concerning the miracle of our Saviour's a virgin birth. <coughs> Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, this statement was made uh, in response to an attempt by the enemies of God uh, to undermine God's plan and God's purpose concerning uh, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we have read from this chapter, we find that the king of Israel had entered into a confederacy with the king of Syria. And we read this in verse 1, uh, that these two kings, they came together, and at the end of the verse we are told that they went up to war Jerusalem uh, to war against it. But please notice what we then read, but could not prevail against it. At which point we may well question why any more detail should be given about the interests of these two kings, whose strategy was sure to fail. But the Bible explains to us that all scripture is given for our instruction. So it is vital and that we learn the lessons that God would want us to receive from this portion of Scripture, for we find that behind the strategy of the enemies of God's people, 
Uh, there was an objective that is recorded in verse 6. Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even uh, the son of Tabiel. I trust you will appreciate that this same strategy is being implemented today. It is the strategy of the devil uh, that he has used down through uh, the generations of time, and he is seeking still to inflict his strategy upon this world. But right at the centre of this objective of the enemy was to break the genealogical line between David and the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that all of you will be aware of the fact uh, that when it comes to your reading of the kings of Israel, uh, you will find that their identity is often distinguished by uh, a man taking over uh, the throne uh, from another. Sometimes it was done peaceably, other times it was done in conflict. But when it comes to the kings of Judah, uh, there was a specific genealogical line. Uh, that is, son uh, followed a uh, father. And right down through uh, the generations of the kings of Judah, we find that that was the structure that God had preserved. There was a reason for it. Because God had promised through the seed of David that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, would be born. Uh, so if it was possible, uh, for the enemies of God to uh, break that genealogical line, uh, then instantly it would have brought God's word into disrepute. Uh, and that's what these two kings were about. Uh, the king of Israel and the king of Syria. Uh, they were determined in their thinking uh, that we will set another king in the midst of Judah even the son of Tabiel. But what do we learn? There are lessons that we must learn. And I believe the lessons that we must learn are embraced there in verse 4 of the chapter, where God uses his servant Isaiah and his son to deliver what I will describe as a timeless message to the Lord's people. And say unto him, referring of course to the king of Judah, but it could be just as much referring to me and also to you. Take heed and be quiet, fear not, and neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking fire brands. There are just a few things that we should take note of. One is the command to, to concentrate. Uh, those two words at the beginning of the exhortation in verse 4, the two words, take heed, are several times referred to in the Bible. Uh, for example, Paul writing to young Timothy, <coughs> he, he said to him, uh, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, uh, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Another familiar inclusion of these two words is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed. 
lest he fall. Uh, and then there is that most challenging reference in Galatians 5 and verse 15. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. These are very powerful exhortations directed to uh, those of us who are saved. That we are to constantly, continually uh, take heed. So that we will not be ignorant of the devil's devices. But what are his devices? Well, again, we go back to verse 6 to to discover his devices. Let us go up against Judah and vex it and let us make a breach therein for us and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tamar. <coughs> let me just briefly mention four strands of the enemy's design here or the enemy's objective. There is his intention. There is his insistence. There is his intrusion <coughs> And then there is his insurrection. And of his intention, we go back to the words of verse 4, and we read there in verse 4 of these two kings uh, being fired up uh, with a fierce anger against Judah. Now we've already pointed out that their objective was to break the genealogical line. Uh, That was their anger, that was their bitterness, that was their hatred. And so they sought to break the link between David and the Messiah. But the forces of hell are just as angry against everyone who is saved. And the Lord Jesus Christ explained that to us. And he said in John 15, If he were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. I don't like to be the subject of hate. It's a natural thing for all of us to uh, want to aspire for popularity and for recognition and for appreciation. But that's not how it's going to be for the child of God. For you can see the link here. Because I have chosen you out of the world, uh, therefore the world hateth you. And it is remarkable that in that same chapter where the Lord Jesus Christ uh, refers to the intensity of the world's hatred against his people, he says, these things I command you, that ye love one another. Do you see the significance of that? He is pointing out to his people that the world will hate you. And he says to his people, you love one another. God's people have enough hatred to encounter rather than that hatred coming from those who are saved. That's what he is saying to them. And that's the objective of the enemy, uh, to make sure that he will drive this spirit of anger, uh, this spirit of hatred against the church in order to intimidate it into silence and to paralyze it with fear. That's his intention. 
But then there is the insistence. Let us go up and vex it. The word vex is a very interesting word. It just simply means to uh, to wear down. To gradually break down the resistance of God's people. So that they will surrender to our demands. It wasn't the desire of the king of Israel and the king of Syria uh, to take Judah overnight. That wasn't in their thinking. It was in their strategy that they would go up and vex it. That they would gradually but steadily wear down the resistance of the people of Judah. Let me just make this point. In the life of Joseph, who we know so well and recognize with respect in his life and testimony in in Egypt, there was that very emotive moment whenever Potiphar's wife came to him and in her sinfully-minded desire, she said to Joseph, lie with me. I don't need to explain that. But he refused. And he said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Then we read this. And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, she was not put off by his instant retraction of her (coughs) she came day by day to lie with her or to be with her do you see it she was wanting to wear down his moral and his spiritual resistance in a similar way we read of Goliath the giant coming out to vex the men of Israel. And the Bible says that he came morning and evening over a period of 40 days. Constantly he bombards you and me in an effort to wear us down, to give up. To stop going forward. That's his insistence. But there is the intrusion here. Let us make a breach to end for us. And the thought behind that expression is, let us cleave our way through, or we might use it maybe in a much more relevant term to the people in this part of the world, let us ship away at their defences. Uh, that is another meaning of it. It would only be, in my opinion, uh, the voice of a proud-hearted person who would speak of the fact that there are not breaches made amongst the Lord's people in these days. There are many breaches amongst the Lord's people throughout this world. And this is what the enemy wants to do. He wants to make breaches amongst the Lord's people. 
But where does he start? He starts in the privacy of your heart and mind. If he can make a breach between you and your private devotions and God, it is not long until that breach will show itself publicly. The idea that some promote in these days that a man's private life shouldn't affect his public life, to me, it is not biblically true. What you are in your home is really what you are elsewhere. And if you find day by day that there is a developing breach between you and your reading of the Scriptures and you and your seeking God's face in prayer, then it will demonstrate itself in other ways. And that's what the enemy wants. He wants to to make a breach between you and your God. That's why we need to take heed. But also we need to take heed to the insurrection. For their objective was to set a king in the midst of it, that is in Jerusalem, even the son of Tamiel. There is what is known today in theological terms uh, as replacement theology. I don't want to sound complicated, it's not. It just simply means that where you have references in the Bible to the church, it is replaced by Israel. In other words, if I read the text, the, the Son of God or Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, a replacement theology says that Christ loved Israel and gave himself for it. Now, I love Israel. I have a very special affinity with Israel. But I will not. I will not accept that Israel can take the place of the church. The church that the Lord Jesus Christ has shed his precious blood for. Israel cannot be a substitute for the church. But equally... On the authority of Holy Scripture, I strongly resist the teaching of Rome, which replaces the message of salvation is of the Lord with the message that salvation is of the church. Or or indeed, may I also say uh, that in some fundamental circles, uh, there is, uh, I I fear, uh, uh, an issue developing uh, where the denomination has replaced the exhortation that in all things Christ must have the preeminence. Now, I believe we can argue the point that there is a good reason for denominational identity. As we look around the world, there's a good reason for that. But there's not a good reason for the denomination taking precedence over Christ. That's the danger. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was the central point in Paul's ministry when he said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
He spoke of Jesus Christ as being our salvation, being our sanctification, being our separation, being our security, being our satisfaction. But there's one telling point here that I don't want to miss. When these two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, said, we'll go up against Jerusalem, we'll vex it, we'll make a breach therein, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tamiel. Tamiel goes back to Esau. And if I can modernize it, if I'm able to do this, what they were saying was, let us put a Muslim on the throne. We have to be aware of that. There is a very strong, a very powerful surge of opposition (coughs) against the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Islamic world would love us to dethrone our beloved Saviour. We're not talking about something three, four thousand years ago. We're talking about something today. Take heed. A command to concentrate, but just very briefly. There is the call to contentment. Going back to verse 4, it says, Take heed and be quiet. I must confess that quietness is not the natural thing for most of us. We oftentimes struggle with the agitating and the aggravating desires of the flesh. And to sentence our emotions into silence does not come easy. But I believe, and I say this with great encouragement to my own heart that sometimes it's good to be quiet. I I love the words that we read in Isaiah 30 and verse 15. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Uh, And on that basis Paul exhorted the church at Thessalonica (coughs) and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business. Peter speaks of the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. It's not the natural thing. Our natural extension to our heart would be that of Abishiah. Whenever David was being exiled from Jerusalem and as he travelled up the Mount of Olives Shimei, a man called Shimei, came and he cursed him, casting stones against the Lord's servant. And Abishai, who was David's cousin, he said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go, for I pray thee, and take off his head. I tell you, that's the reaction that most of us would have taken. But David instantly quieted the situation 
said this. Let him alone and let him curse. It may be the Lord will look in mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. Just let him alone. Is there someone that stirs your anger? Someone who insensitizes your resentment? Take heed and be quiet. Then just finally, there is the cementing the confidence here. Because we read, fear not, and neither be faint-hearted. The thought of faint-heartedness here is when one melts away with heat. When the heat's applied, they start melting away. Immediately, of course, we think of the three Hebrew children who, whenever they were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar, he said, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? Though I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Which brings us right back to our reading here. For it speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ as being Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us in the furnace. Don't fear. Don't be faint-hearted. That's what the message would be. That was the message, of course, to the nation of Judah. But it is not inconceivable that some here are not saved. And you will have no idea, perhaps, how much people think about you and pray for you. And there's no question about it. We'd love to see you saved. It's a couple of Mondays ago, Monday week ago, around about, I think it was 9.30, around about that time, I received a phone call to say that, that Richard Dawkins, the very strong and publicly promoted atheist was in Belfast and would I go into the studio in Belfast and discuss with him? I, I knew of his reputation. I knew of how he just dismissed people's objections to what he believed and so on. I'd listened to him before as a very arrogant, a very self-asserting individual. I must confess, initially my stomach turned a little. But I felt I can't but go. We were able to spend time in prayer as others did. 
and the discussion, although it was really a telephone call-in program more directed to him and to another friend that he had, Leonard Grouse, we had some little contribution to make. And at the end of it, William Crawley, who was the moderator or the chairperson, he very kindly left the final word, or more or less the final word, with me. I said, referring to these two men by their names who were sitting in the studio, I said, if Richard and Lawrence are right, that there is no heaven and there is no hell, as they have said, then we have nothing to fear. Not a thing. But, if I am right, as I believe I am, on the authority of God's word, then I've got to say to these two men, there's a heaven to gain, and there's a hell to be shunned. And that's true. You see, the gospel is not understood by education. It's understood by revelation. These men, they abound in intellectual knowledge much, much, much more superior than, than I could ever be. But I'm glad that God has said in his word, these things are revealed to me as simple as that. You can come today through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ because there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to be shunned. Take heed. Be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. Thank you so, so much for listening.